Would you like to turn, please, to Ephesians and chapter 3? Ephesians and chapter 3. reading the first uh, first half of that chapter for this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations wasn't made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you that you have an eternal purpose. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your church has ever been in your heart, in your gaze. You have an eternal purpose, focused in Christ, outworked through your body. And Father, we just confess to you our great need of you right now, our severe limitations without you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for your promise that you'll be with us. We thank you, Father. You said if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So, Father, I ask that as we go through these God-breathed words, the Spirit of God will drench us and come on us and give us insight and revelation, illumination. Spirit of God, be on us, I pray. Change us, shape us, form us, that we might be fitted and made bold by the truth of the Word of God. Come and help us, please, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm sure it doesn't need me to repeat that. We're simply going through these chapters in Ephesians, and this is the third and final uh, one of these studies, taking us halfway through the chapter and sadly uh, stopping short of Paul's uh, breathtaking prayer 
which concludes uh, that chapter. So, coming first of all then to Paul, introducing himself afresh, as it were, he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul uh, reminds the people that he's in prison, but he doesn't look at second causes. He doesn't see himself as merely a prisoner of the Roman uh, army or of its government, of its legislature. He sees himself as essentially the prisoner of Christ. He doesn't subject himself to second causes. And that's a brilliant lesson for us from the very first. Whatever we're going through, if we really believe in a sovereign God who orders our steps, it may be, it seems other people are making decisions about us. But Paul was constantly robust in his faith. When he was in that Philippian jail, he just kept worshipping. We are on European soil. God said, come over to Macedonia. We are here. Our backs may be bleeding. We may be in the inner prison. We are in the centre of the will of God. Hallelujah. We must be, therefore, his prisoner. He wants us to be in jail. He had this ability to look at circumstances and see a God behind the immediate circumstances. It's important for us just to catch that straight away, that we are not at the mercy of things that seem to turn out. We are in the hand of God. And so it's important we grab that for ourselves straight away. He says, I'm a prisoner for the sake of you Gentiles. Perhaps a reminder there straight away. Also that it was because of his emphasis on Gentile inclusion and withstanding the imposition of Sabbath and other uh, circumcision and other Jewish uh, things uh, from the past. It was because of his uh, stand on that issue that he was constantly in problems, constantly being persecuted and found himself in prison. It was for the sake of these Gentiles. He was willing to pay that price to get this message out to them. It was for their sake that he was in prison. And he seems to be starting a prayer. That's uh, the feel of it, the shape of it. For this reason, I, Paul, and uh, he actually, Bill, picks up. He interrupts himself. Paul is not a very careful writer. He's not very orderly. And uh, so you'll find in verse 14, he kind of picks up from where he interrupts himself. For this reason, I bow my knees. It sounds as though that's the way he starts the chapter. I'm going to pray. And then he says, oh, by the way, um, I'm just going to remind you uh, something of my calling the grace that's been given to me, the insight into the mysteries. And so we're going to look at the mystery that was revealed to Paul. And Paul sees that, first of all, as a stewardship of grace. He says, you may have heard about the administration of God's grace given to me for you. He sees the grace that he has is obviously talking about his apostleship. Like salvation itself... Paul's call and gifting of apostleship is by grace. It's the grace of apostleship that's been given to him. This grace that was given to me, not for my sake, it wasn't given to him for his own prestige. He doesn't say, I want you to know about the grace that's been given to me for my prestige. He says, the grace that's been given to me for you. You need what I have, he's saying. I've been given grace, apostleship. I've been given this gift from God. Romans 1.5, he says, I have received grace and apostleship. Ephesians chapter 4, had we time to go on through the epistle, we would read, he ascended on high, the Lord Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts to men. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some evangelists and pastors and teachers. These grace gifts were distributed from a victorious king. 
He ascended through the heavens, triumphantly receiving from the Father the Spirit, spilling over his triumph in the distributing of gifts to his church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And Paul happened to receive the grace of an apostle. It isn't that, uh, you know, at Bible college, the guys who get 90% and above, they're probably apostles. And kind of 80% and above, well, they're prophets, I guess. And then evangelists, and well, you'd be pastors and teachers, you know. <laughs> Paul doesn't see it like that. He says, this is the grace that was given to me. He says, I am the very least, the very least of all saints. In verse 8. He doesn't say, I was so brilliant at the feet of Gamaliel. I was such a, uh, a, a learned scholar, which he undoubtedly was. But he then says, I regard all that as trash compared with the revelation of Christ. And so he doesn't say, I, I obtained this. He said, I received this as a gift of grace. God did it. God did it. And we must understand that. Whatever our gift is, as John the Baptist said, uh, what a man receives, he gets from God. He's got no more than he gets from God. And we need to understand that. What we have, we have from God. It's a gift of grace, not that we should boast, as we saw in an earlier passage. And it is also on the basis of the working of his power. You see this, it says in verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. So we're not simply talking about an office. We're not talking about a label. You know, on your door, apostle or pastor or whatever. Well, this is where I am in the pecking order. This is my office. I've just got promoted. I've been here a while. They're calling me this now. No, no, no. It's nothing to do with titles. It's according to the working of power. There's a power gift that's come to Paul. Paul's got grace from heaven. It includes a power gift that makes this thing work. We've just been hearing about tools for the job. One of God's wonderful provisions for the church is apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. And we need to rediscover that. We haven't time to get into Ephesians 4 uh, this week together. But we do need to understand he did not simply give one priest for one group of people. Changed the name priest to pastor. One pastor for one group of people. No, 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 no. He has given many gifts. Otherwise, we will not see the church come to full stature and maturity. So Paul says, I'm the very least of saints. He's got no uh, pride in this matter. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I'm not fit to be called an apostle. I'm not fit. And uh, so he's not arrogant about this. And we just need to quickly have a quick word about apostles here. We said yesterday that there were a unique 12 Obviously, Jesus choosing 12, full of symbolism, as it reflects the 12 sons of Jacob, as Jesus gathers this new community on planet Earth. And we saw in John 17, or at least we made passing reference to it, how Jesus gave himself to these 12, shared the Father with them, spent time with them, got them to understand. They came to see who he was. He shared everything with them. Didn't share the mysteries with the crowds, shared the mysteries with the 12. They are unique, undoubtedly unique. But in addition to the twelve, there were also Paul, Barnabas, James. And we just need to rediscover this because for many of us from an evangelical background, it is assumed that there were twelve apostles and that's history. That's behind. They wrote documents. The church is built on those old documents. But actually it wasn't simply twelve There were 12 who were undoubtedly unique, 
undoubtedly unique. But also Paul, who emerges. And not to replace Judas as such teachers as Campbell Morgan suggested. Nowhere in scripture does it suggest that Paul replaced Judas. Nowhere. Paul talks about the twelve in 1 Corinthians 15, not including himself. And so Paul breaks the pattern. I guess we might say, or have to say, Paul also has a uniqueness. But then you begin to get in problems because does James also have a uniqueness? He's not one of the twelve, but he's clearly an apostle. And James emerges at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 with authority. Indeed, it would appear that Peter and Paul and others submitted themselves somewhat to James there in Jerusalem when he said, it's my decision, this is the way we're going to proceed. So James, not one of the twelve, but nevertheless an apostle, is there with some weight. And then of course there's Barnabas, who's also called an apostle. And then we get Andronicus and Junius mentioned in Romans 16, 7. And so apostles are not limited simply to 12, and that's the end of the story. In Bible days, there were clearly other people, and we need to just get hold of this reality. He ascended on high and gave gifts, and there were some apostles, some prophets, etc. And often it's been argued, well, of course, to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Christ. But we're not talking about the twelve, nor the replacement for Judas, who had to have been with them from the beginning, witness to it all. We're talking about not apostles of the resurrected Christ, we're talking about apostles of the ascended Christ, who's gone through the heavens. And from heaven he gives, and has continually been giving apostles to the church. If I may quote Arthur Wallace, the view that apostles and prophets have passed away and that spiritual gifts have ceased, both rest on the faulty premise that the completion of Scripture rendered them obsolete. The onus clearly rests on those who assert that apostles were only intended to be a temporary institution to prove it from Scripture which of course is never the way it's done. You kind of look around and say, there aren't any around, are there? So they must have stopped. It's not argued from scripture. You're most welcome if you see this magazine lying around downstairs uh, to pick it up and take one. And you'll see that we've got three articles in here about apostles today and a lot of quotes from people whom we honor and respect. And Howard Snyder says this, some have argued that apostles no longer exist today. But this conclusion runs counter to biblical evidence. Nothing in Paul's treatment of spiritual gifts suggests that he was describing a pattern for the early church only. Quite the opposite. For Paul, the church is a growing, grace-filled body and apostles are a permanent part of that body's life. And then even to quote the academic study by Sandy and Hedlum, from a previous generation, but scholarship in her famous commentary on Romans, it is well known that this word is used in two senses, a narrower sense in which it was applied by our Lord himself to the twelve, and a wider in which it includes certainly Barnabas and probably James, the Lord's brother, Andronicus, Junius, and many others. Okay, so we mustn't allow ourselves to be shaped by what's become popular thought. We must be shaped by the scripture and see that apostles are an ongoing part of church life. I just want to mention that now. We may make passing reference to that again later. 
So Paul says this is a grace gift that was given to him. And today God is still giving grace gifts to people. And we need the whole package if we're going to see church as she was at the beginning when the apostles first started. All right, so the mystery revealed a stewardship of grace. Secondly, it's a mystery revealed, but it's not a a puzzling, obscure secret. When we talk about a mystery, that conjures up maybe strange images. A mystery, is this uh, only for the initiated? What's this mystery? Do you have to get into something else to get insight, special meetings? Do you do a course on that? No, it's, uh, it's an open mystery. John Stott says, Christian mysteries are truths which, although beyond human discovery have been revealed by God, and so now belong openly to the whole church. Right? We're not talking about special insights, special mysteries. No, no, no. They belong to the whole church. That's the way the word is used. But nevertheless, it does say something that was formerly hidden. It was formerly hidden. Now, we just need to back up a moment and reflect on our view of the inspiration of Scripture. Evangelical believers believe that the Word of God in its original form was God-breathed. Men spoke as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. His Word is on my mouth. God spoke. God was speaking through them. And that was clearly the view of the uh, Lord Jesus himself. And he would talk from Scripture repeatedly. Scripture, God-breathed, always inspired. And yet... We need to understand this. Scripture, although it's all inspired, there is a development of revelation, a growing revelation. Things that are hidden in shadow form, often in the Old Testament, are explicitly revealed in the New Testament. That is what the Bible says of itself. That isn't a a human concept. That's what the Bible says of itself. Peter says... Quoting from Old Testament passages in his epistle, he says, These things, these holy men wrote about, they longed to look into. They wanted to know what they were writing about. 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12, it says that they were hidden. It says in verse 9 of what we're reading together now, for ages kept hidden in God. See, they were, Paul says in verse 9, they were hidden in God. There's, a, there's a, something yet to be broken open. And so men like Isaiah, according to Peter, they're writing magnificent prophetic statements. You imagine them writing, imagine Isaiah writing Isaiah chapter 53. He was smitten of God and afflicted. He's bruised for our sins. He is put to death. And then it says, he shall share the spoils with the strong. And you think, well, how can a guy who's dead share spoils. And, and he must have been thinking, what am, I, what am I saying? What is this about? And so he has a partial, I mean, breathtaking revelation, and yet for himself, he's not seeing it all. He can't see it all. And so we find that when Philip meets the Ethiopian, he's reading Isaiah chapter 53, and he's reading that very passage that's so famous, and the Ethiopian is asked by Philip, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I understand? Unless someone shows me. And it says, starting with that scripture, Philip preached to him Christ. You see, it needed the New Testament revelation of what Isaiah 53 and hundreds and hundreds of other passages were saying. We must understand that. You read the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament. 
People have failed to grasp that biblical principle and got themselves into all kinds of trouble. Because they bring private interpretation. And Peter says there is no private interpretation. We need to see the way the Bible is structured. It's very important. So although it's all God-breathed and inspired, there's a growing revelation. They're getting more and more revelation. Jesus came on the scene and brought more. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus came shedding light. The grace of God fully shone out in the coming of Christ. God had always demonstrated himself as gracious. Moses has shown me your glory. And God said, I am the Lord, gracious and kind. There had always been a revelation of grace, but it shone out in the coming of Christ. It's greater revelation. The New Covenant, the New Testament books have far greater revelation. We must see that as a principle. Not only that, one further step. Jesus said to the apostles in the upper room, I've got more to say to you yet. But at the moment, you couldn't comprehend it if I told you. But when I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit. Then when the Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. He will take what is mine and show it to you. He will show you, I am in the Father, the Father's in me, and I am in you. I imagine them being totally bewildered. It's so difficult, but he said, you can't take it in yet. If I told you, I've got more I could tell you, but you couldn't take it in. When he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, and Nicodemus says, uh, how'd you do that? Uh, you get back in the womb? Uh. Jesus said, if you don't understand earthly things, that's what he said to Nicodemus, if you don't understand earthly, that's an earthly thing. How would you understand if I told you spiritual things? And Jesus said to the disciples, you know, I'm the true vine, you're the branches. I can imagine the apostle saying, he thinks he's a tree now. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, isn't it, to think yourself as, I mean, it's, I'm a tree, I'm the true vine, you're a branch. Yes, Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or in John 6, when he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no life in you. Ah, uh, yeah, well, it seemed nice to be with you for a while. And it says many left him that day. They couldn't handle what he had to say. And so revelation had to go some further. And so Jesus, when I go to the Father, the Spirit will come and bring revelation to you. Previously unknown revelation. All right, so important that Jesus is saying this to these 12 Jewish apostles. You've got to understand there's things that you don't understand yet, but you will understand when the Holy Spirit comes. And so Paul says concerning this now, he says, we have revealed. The apostles gave identity to the New Testament community through their revelation and teaching, which was foundational. Paul says, God has given us insight into the mysteries. We'll come back to that more later on. But the apostles had revelation of the mysteries. They now understand what it's all about. You see, you not only need a cross to save you, you need a revelation, an apostolic revelation of what the cross did. You see, you can go over many countries and see crosses, you can see crucifixes, you can see Jesus hanging on the cross. That won't save you unless you know what the apostles said, what happened on the cross. You need an apostolic revelation of what happened on the cross. What Jesus told the apostles happened then. 
And not only that your sins were forgiven, you need the full weight of the apostolic revelation, you also were crucified. I would never know that. How do I know that? How do I know that when a lamb died on a cross, I might get a hint. He's the lamb. He took away my sin. I might get a hint. But how would I ever know? I was crucified with him. How would I ever know? We all died with him. We were all raised with him. We're all seated with him in heavenly places. How would we know that? We wouldn't know that. Except through the revelation given to the apostles. And so it's important for us to see it that way. And to see that is the way God moved. He gave revelation to these apostles. He established them. They established the identity of the New Testament community. That's who they were. People were saved, were added to these guys who knew what was going on. And they gave themselves daily to the apostles' teaching. Now what was the essential content? He says, I have insight, I want you to know about this insight that I have into the mystery of Christ. The mystery, verse 6, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So once again, we get that Greek prefix, sum, that we saw in the earlier chapter, that we've been raised with Christ, etc., how he added that prefix, sum, which says we were together with Christ when he rose. We were together with him when he seated in the heavenlies. Now he's saying this concerning Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers, in the promise. We're together. It's in one Greek word. We're, we're participators in this. If I could just go on, John Stott says, what neither the Old Testament, you've got this in your notes, nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan, which was the, that the theocracy, the Jewish nation under God's rule, would be terminated and replaced by a new international community. The church organically united to him and that Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without any distinction. Right? So Paul says this is the mystery that's been hidden. In the Old Testament it was very clear through Isaiah and so on that the nations would come. It was spoken again and again. The nations will come and worship Israel's God. We will all come. They'll come from far and wide. They will all come. The, The law will go out and all the nations will come. They'll bow to Israel's God. That had been said again and again and again. Nations get ready to bow to Israel's God. What had not been clear before, well, it wasn't just kind of stuck on, but part of that we are together with. And so Lloyd-Jones says, this is what demolishes all attempts to perpetuate a distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction any longer. There's no superiority, no inferiority. The system of dispensationalism maintains that there is. And there is a heavenly people and an earthly people. And that the Jews will be brought back and be given a very special place again at some future time. Such teaching is a denial of what we are told here. And all that is finished forever. There is one body that Jew and Gentile are equally joints impacted together in the one body. That's very important. We learn from what the apostles taught. 
one body, high on God's heart. Paul was willing to be in prison for emphasizing this. He shed blood for that. He was beaten up for that. That's the big apostolic burden. And the responsibility of the apostles was to give identity to who are the true people of God. There's a lot of recovery these days about talking about apostles. A few years ago, I never saw a book on apostles. I've got about seven in my uh, cupboard now. They just keep coming now. There's loads of books on apostles. It's getting very popular in the US and around, and books are being written. But when you look at them, you think, well, it's all very well saying apostles are still for today. But what do they do? What do they do? Well, from some of the books I read, it's like they have big successful churches. And so it's just that all they do, it's like, it's like a, an evangelist, but better. Or a pastor teacher, but better. And influential. And so you can read C. Peter Wagner, who's written some excellent stuff in his book, Churchquake. But the implication that comes through is, well, these are the successful churches that others imitate. They must be apostolic. What do you think? Is that what it says? What did apostles do at the beginning? One of the things apostles did at the beginning was define who the people of God are. They gave foundational clarity to who we are. It's fundamental to their role. The church was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets. It's important, therefore, we see this very significant word. We are co-heirs. We are fellow partakers. And as Dr. Lloyd-Jones says most plainly, we must not be affected by this fairly modern teaching of dispensationalism that became popularized by the Schofield Bible and was more and more pushed out, particularly through that Bible, and became current for so many. And it's a tragedy to me that we who believe in the ongoing life of the Spirit, charismatics, Pentecostals, believe in the ongoing life of God, have popularized even more this dispensational teaching. And somehow taken it on board and put it in our glossy magazines without being a little bit more cautious and saying, is this what it says? And so many a charismatic has taken on board dispensationalism. You think, well, maybe that's totally foreign to who we are. And it's totally foreign, dear friends, to classic evangelical doctrine. It is an invasion. It's a recent invasion. And something we must withstand, as John Stott forcefully does in his Bible Speaks Today commentary. Withstands it strongly. He says, I wouldn't have this. We must understand that he's speaking as an orthodox evangelical. He's not some house church name. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones doesn't exactly go in anybody's pocket. (laughs) These men are declaring what has always been classic evangelical doctrine. And we need to be very clear about this difference lest we get sentimentally cornered. And people say, ah, you into... You see, what did you notice? The language John Stott used. Replaced by a new international community. Sometimes people come to me and say, are you into replacement theology? I'd never heard the phrase when the first person asked me that. I said, what is that? I don't know what that is. That was an honest answer. I didn't know what he was talking about. But that language I've heard more and more now as years and months have slipped by And there can be an emotive word. Are you anti? No, I'm not anti. I'm for this glorious church. Which is Jew and Gentile. This is the Jew Paul. The Pharisee of Pharisees. Who was given this blinding revelation of who is Jesus Christ. And what God had hidden for generations now revealed. You say, well I can't see this back in the Old Testament. It says it was hidden. See, don't 
If we're biblical Christians, dear friends, if we're, and we're built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, if this is authentic Christianity we're defending and promoting, it says it was hidden for ages in God. It was God's way of working. He chose to hide it. People thought about substantial things like temples and cities and land. Physical things. That's how they could understand. But when the apostles sat down and looked up at the temple and said, look at that Jesus. Isn't it breathtaking? And it must have been one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Glistening in gold. Jesus said, it's coming down soon. (laughs) Not one stone standing on another. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is such a key chat, uh, epistle, we're not looking at it now, but it's saying, look, there's a better covenant. There's a better way. It's obsolete, this. It's obsolete. People are getting distracted. And if you have an apostolic burden, it should concern you, because it's robbing people of their focus on a glorious church. And people interpret their personal salvation, just me and Jesus, but big things, they look elsewhere. Listen, there's no bigger thing than this glorious church. so important we understand this principle. Formerly hidden, now revealed. And we, build, we, are, we want to be built on a true apostolic foundation, don't we? I don't want to be just subject to any drift. What does it say? It's our responsibility to get ourselves into. What did the apostles teach? Because Jesus said, when the Spirit comes to you, he will take these hidden things and reveal them to you. It's going to have massive ramifications. I'm interested in the nations, the millions of China, the millions of the 1040 window, the millions of India, of Indonesia. I'm after them all. That's where our focus goes. Go to all the nations. That was God's plan. He said to Abraham, all the nations. That's where your focus is. What? This glorious church going out, out, out. It's breathtaking. Wonderful community. Beware the danger of taking on board dispensationalism without realizing what you're doing. I remember I was taught it some years ago in a church that didn't believe anything continues. Tongues aren't for today. Prophecy isn't for today. Apostles, of course not, not for today. In fact, the church isn't for much longer. That's what I was taught. We used to have charts up on the front. Every year. The church was called a parenthesis. An interruption in God's plan. It's folly. And it robs us of a sense of purpose and motivation. And it's not biblical Christianity. And so Paul says, God has given us an insight into the mystery. You say, well, is there no future for the Jews? Oh, of course there is. You look at Romans 9 through 11. God's got a great plan. God's undoubtedly working among Jewish people around the world. We hear phenomenal stories. God's got a plan. God will, we're told in Romans 9 through 11, save them. Now we haven't time to go through Romans 9 through 11, you'll be glad to know. But, what does that mean, he'll save all Israel? Surely it means a great number, the vast majority I would think it means. Whether it means explicitly everyone is difficult to say. Because often it says all Israel went out to hear John the Baptist, but I don't think every house was empty. Massive crowds, massive majority perhaps. A great awakening. And Paul says in Romans, what will that mean? Life from the dead. And they'll get plugged back in. They get drawn in. Not another gospel. 
the same gospel. The Messiah they long waited for, but didn't recognize. They didn't know the moment of their visitation. So we need to understand that. There is one way now, but it's for Jews and Gentiles. And it's no longer based on material things. Temple, it's coming down. Do we worship on this mountain or that mountain? You worship in spirit and truth. But what about the land? Well, here's the land. Jesus said, sell the guy says, how do I get eternal life? He says, sell what you've got. Sell your property. Get up and follow me. Uh, what, the holy land? Yes, get up. Come on, let's go. Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. What did he do? Sold his land. Let's go to the nations. See, it's a New Testament emphasis has switched. As John Stott says, there is nowhere in the New Testament that shows us an emphasis on land. Hebrews are told to look for no continuing city. Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews, are told we don't look for a continuing city. We're looking for a city to come. We're outside the camp. We're a spiritual community. Our inheritance is in heavenly places. That's what Ephesians is all about. One day we'll get a new heaven and a new earth. We'll come to in a moment. But Oh, dear friends, this is such a sidetrack. And it robs people of having a vision of a glorious church. Oh, I, want to, I long to see... Jewish people saved. I've been in touch recently with Jews for Jesus, and we're talking. They wrote to me recently. A lot of Jewish people in Brighton and Hove. I thought, hmm, we follow this up. Yeah, of course we do. Of course we do. To them, begun belongs the glory and the covenants and the promise, as Paul says in Romans nine. We honour that. But there's only one gospel. There's the Messiah Jesus, whom we love, who comes from that line. So we've got to get our thinking clear on this. And this is, when we present all the apostles, listen, apostles' responsibility is to define the church. Very apostolic. The mystery, Paul says, we not only had an insight into the mystery, we had to proclaim it. He says, God gave me insight into the mystery. And then he said, and that's in verse 4. And then he says, grace was also given to him, in verse 8, to proclaim to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So he got grace to see it. Further, part of his apostolic gift was grace to preach it. Grace to see it, grace to preach it. And so he went out, and that was his life, to make known the mystery of Christ. Making known Christ's riches to the Gentiles was his passion. The unsearchable. We could have a whole morning on that, couldn't we? The unsearchable Riches of Christ. It's a word you'll find in Job 5 and 9, 9 and 10, and Romans 11 and 33. Oh, the unsearchable wisdom of God and so on. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Never-ending revelation centered in Christ will always captivate us. Keep praying for a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul prays that, doesn't he? I'm praying for you to get a spirit of, or the Holy Spirit, to give you revelation. We need revelation of Christ all the time. The focal point of all of God's way of speaking. Pray for it. Pray for an ever-increasing grasp of what God accomplished on the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension. So much counselling, little problem things. People often get little problem things, they haven't had a revelation of what God's done. Now, people need counselling to bring them into that line sometimes. Of course, we tenderly, lovingly help broken, wounded people, but to bring them into the revelation of Christ. 
It isn't, oh, we showed them the gospel, that didn't help, so we're trying this stuff. No, 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 no. The gospel is the answer. And some people need loving Christian counseling to bring them to that. But they need a revelation of the glory of Christ. Without that, see, people think, well, I know, yeah, I know the gospel, but I'm in real problems. <laughs> do you hear what I'm saying? So, oh, yeah, well, we better do it. Well, of course, gospel. We all know the gospel. No, we don't. We need a spirit of revelation. I'm a new creation. I'm created by God in Christ. I'm no longer a slave of sin. We need to get the truth, this breathtaking truth, into the saints. If we are teachers, and we had lots, I don't know, hundreds here the other day came forward as primary pastor teachers in their local church, as Paul prayed over us or drew us forward, listen, that's our responsibility. You preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. You proclaim them. We see people come alive and aware of who they are. Mitten says, and the quote's in your notes if you brought them with you, the unsearchable riches of Christ suggest the picture of a reservoir so deep that soundings cannot reach the bottom of it. No limit can therefore be put to its resources. Keep searching after Christ. I love it when people give us songs to sing that focus our attention on Christ. And give us a desire to press after him. And then further Paul's apostolic gift, first to see it, then to proclaim it, and then he says also to enlighten them, to bring them aware, make them alive to it, to preach to the uns, and to make plain to everyone the administration of the mystery. My responsibility, Paul says, is to make it plain, turn the light on, help them understand. Paul was equipped not only to proclaim the riches, but also to enlighten people. I believe that's when Paul says in Romans 1, 1, I long to come to you that I might impart some spiritual gift to you. Now I don't rule out that also that might have been laying on of hands, various gifts of the Spirit, but I believe it's more than that. He says that you might be established by it. The Corinthians had a load of spiritual gifts, but they weren't very well established. And so Paul says, I want to come to you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift that you might be established And I believe Paul's apostolic gift had an ability to turn the light on for people. I feel that's one of the roles of apostolic ministry. That there is a gift included sometimes to preach about who we are in Christ. And what God has done in freeing us from law and bringing us into grace. There is a gift that turns the light on for people. And people say, I never saw, now I see. Paul could be able to turn the light on. Oh, I'm a new creation. I'm not under law. And that suddenly they were in the dark, now they're in the light. And it's more than just being explained. It's somehow a revelation hits them. And I feel that's part of that ministry. So God said to him, Acts 26, 17, Paul, I call you to open their eyes of those in darkness. There is a gift. Paul's got grace to do that. 2 Corinthians 4, the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness shone in our hearts. It's an administration of a mystery. Paul has ability to communicate it. The whole outworking of the ramifications of what God did in Christ. And the administration of a mystery. The mystery didn't just happen at Calvary. It's got its outworking running through the centuries and through the nations. It's an administration of this mystery that started, if you like, in a little stable. Great is the mystery of God. God was manifested in the flesh. God's great plan is preached among the nations. That administration, we have responsibility for the administration of that mystery. That is the church. 
the administration of the mystery among the nations, where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither black nor white, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. All those deeply entrenched barriers that are in society swept away. We're all one in Christ. This is the administration of the mystery. And we have huge responsibility in outworking that. Making known then the mystery. So the the gospel isn't some last minute panic adjustment. It's something hidden in God for ages past. And then verse 10, making known God's wisdom to cosmic powers. This takes it to, it's like it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The birth of the church as a reconciled, multiracial humanity is a public demonstration of God's power, grace, and manifold wisdom. Many coloured wisdom. I had the great privilege of being in South Africa, and I guess I'm there most years now, in God's guidance and mercy, our commitment to being with Simon Pettit, who should have been on this platform this week, and our dear friends, many of whom are even here. And uh, the great joy and delight I always feel. I guess South Africa has been the focal point of a lot of attention politically around the world. And to see the church working out multicolored Christianity is a sheer delight. Their total commitment that we are one people in Christ. It was such a joy to be there a few weeks ago as we had different bands leading at different times. And there at one point there was a a black band leading the worship and leading the singing. And in front, I mean just such a crowd dancing, dancing. And they said, oh there's there's a coffee break, we'll be back in three quarters of an hour. None of them went, just going on dancing, dancing. It was just wonderful, absolute sheer joy and delight. And at one point Simon nudged me, he said, the song they're singing now, he said, it's an Africana song. That's the white Africana. It's the black guys leading it, singing the Africana song. And the whites and blacks and so-called coloreds and all kinds of us are all leaping up and down, led by the blacks singing the Africana song and laughing and singing and dancing like only the Africans can. And it was just fabulous. We don't go out to the nation and say, take on Englishness. God forbid. (laughs) We embrace the cultures. If there is a culture, if there is a culture, it's the Jewish one. It's certainly not the English one. What have we got to offer? Morris dancers? Forget it. God's looking for a multicultural. Let's go. It's such a privilege. I know it's, I feel, I find it a huge privilege going from nation to nation and embracing another culture. Being with our dear Indian friends, just feeling that just the beauty of what God's invested in them. It's breathtaking. It's the church. God's got a wonderful plan. It's his church. He made the mystery known to Paul. 
and the apostles and prophets previously hidden, now revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets. These New Testament prophets. This church built on New Testament prophets, not the Old Testament prophets. God's wisdom, known now, not only to the world. The world stands amazed in places like South Africa when it sees the unity of these saints who love one another. It's a breathtaking revelation. No one else can do it. They can't do it. When we talk about our inner city, hearing Bill Wilson the other day, hearing Andy yesterday, breaking into tough inner city areas, entrenched hatred often. Hey, the church can do it. The church can do it. And gradually, the political parties are going to see this. They're beginning to notice. They're beginning to notice, ah, uh, that's called church. Um, but actually, that looks like that might be something happening. I heard Roger Forster say, politicians understand these people aren't spiritual leaders leading anybody anywhere. Roger Forster said it, so I feel safe. (laughs) God is doing a wonderful thing with all kinds of different labels, so please don't misunderstand me. Loads of different labels. Like Roger's Ichthus label, right in the heart of London, doing a wonderful work. For the glory of God. Leading people into spiritual realities. This Silk Road that we read about or saw about the first afternoon, Roger's deeply involved in that. I tell you, the radical leading people into spiritual realities. And the world will be and say, what is going on here? We hear you're doing this. I thank God in Bedford, the council know. They know where the love is. They know where the action is. They know where to send the homeless. As Andy was telling us in our seminar yesterday, the history of the Salvation Army, suddenly, there they were, in the streets, in the need, with our gospel. Uncompromising gospel. Meeting social need, but uncompromising. Jesus, the only answer. And Andy's saying, we're doing the same thing. Sometimes the temptation to water it down, because they're beginning to see we can do things. If we say Jesus, no, no, we must say Jesus. He's the only way. I had a similar discussion with Steve Chalk recently. He said the temptation to... No, no, he said, we must say it's only the gospel. I've heard Pete and Hetty say the same down there in Peter Maritzburg. When they can see, you can do it socially, you can do it. And the temptation to say, no, no, it's only Jesus can do it. This is what the church is all about. It's a breathtaking revelation. We find Babel, total distraction, Tower of... Babel, distraction. Next chapter, Abraham. I'm going to bless the nations through you. God's plan. God's alternative. Judgment, scattering. Next chapter, mercy. I'm going to get to them. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue. I'm going to bless them. It's going to come. And so we find God made the mystery known. Lincoln says, Ephesians 1, 21 to 23, that magnificent end of that wonderful chapter, Christ's lordship over the cosmos is shown to be on behalf of the church. He is head over all things for the church. It doesn't say that he's head of the church. He says that later. But here he's head of all things for the church. And the church has a special role as the medium of Christ's presence and rule in the cosmos. Here, in 3, 9 to 10, we should understand that it's because the church alone is Christ's body and fullness that only through the church can principalities and powers be shown with clarity the claim 
of Christ's Lordship. It's only, that's how it's going to be known. He's gone through the heavens. It's through the church. He favoring the church. We're so favored. He's head over all things, but he's on our side. We're so favored. It's crucial for us to see the centrality and glory of the church in God's great eternal plan. She's his delight, his multicolored revelation. Not only to the nations, and we must rush to a conclusion, but also to the principalities and powers. It's not only for our unregenerate neighbors to say, what is this? It is even bigger. There's a bigger stage. There are amazing witnesses. Verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is no longer just Pharaoh saying, what is this? It's no longer the Canaanites saying, who are these people? It's principalities and powers saying, what's going on here? It's God's intention that through the church, God will amaze rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church and the salvation of God are the greatest manifestation of the wisdom of God. God is displaying his wisdom to principalities and powers. Now, principalities and powers have already seen his wisdom in creation. That just defies our thinking. The sons of God sang for joy when he hurled the universe into space. They sang for joy. They saw his wisdom. They gasped at this material thing that he made from nothing. They sang for joy. They saw his wisdom there. In history, they've watched his wisdom. Over the nations, empires rising and falling, especially his wisdom in preserving the Jewish people. His hand, his wisdom has been on display. They've watched his wisdom. Often, I expect, been breathtaking by his wisdom. But now, now, it's a good word to underline, now, his wisdom is on display. Where? Through the church. And it's like this pure light of God has come through the prism of the church. This white light from God comes through this prism, which is the church, and you get the full spectrum of color. Have you ever seen a peacock? They look just such ordinary birds, although their head and neck beautiful. Suddenly, whoosh, out goes this marvelous, marvelous display of color. God says through the church, that, that white light hits us, and pow, like a prism, color broken up into its many facets. The church, the manifold, the multicolored wisdom of God. The church to which you and I belong is the most astonishing phenomenon the world has ever seen. More wonderful than anything else in creation. If we can put it this way, solving the problem of sin. If we may reverently say that, in a, and a fallen humanity and a cursed earth was a greater challenge to God's wisdom than the whole of creation. If you understand what I'm saying, it may sound a bit irreverent. The wisdom needed to create, who can imagine it? The breakdown of DNA, buds, seeds, growth, planets. The wisdom of God is breathtaking. But the wisdom of solving the problem of a fallen humanity, a cursed world, this is looking for awesome wisdom to put this right. 
And God has been pleased to demonstrate to principalities and powers the greatness of his wisdom. And the way he's chosen to do it is through the church. This is his biggest display and demonstration in the universe of his wisdom. The universe, we will never stop researching it. The angels will never stop researching the church. I think, what is this? These sinners, that no good. Whoa, what's happening to her? What's happening to her? What's happening to her? What's happening to them? There's more of them. There's more. Now there's more. There's more. It's across that. What's what's he doing now? How did he do that? How did Paul was cursing, threatening, killing? Whoa, he's an apostle. What happened? (laughs) Why did he do that? The wisdom of God. And the principalities and powers are going, God, you're so wise. It's God's wisdom. The church. Has the future got a church? I tell you. It's the one thing certain. Is God's beautiful demonstration. If I can quote Lloyd-Jones, I'm sorry it's not in your quotes, but I stumbled on it early this morning. (laughs) And my wonderful secretary got down here early and typed it up for you, all right? How terribly wrong it is for those who call themselves dispensationalists to say that the Christian church was a mere afterthought in the mind of God. And he never really intended it in eternity. The greatest thing in the universe, the greatest manifestation of God's wisdom, an afterthought. Because that's what's taught. The church, far from being an afterthought, is the brightest shining of the wisdom of God. It's equally wrong to say that the church is only temporary. And that a time will come when she'll be removed. And the gospel of the kingdom, a different gospel, will again be preached to the Jews. There is nothing beyond the church. She is the highest, most supreme manifestation of the wisdom of God. And to look forward to something beyond the church is to deny not only this verse, but many other verses in Scripture. The church is the final expression of the wisdom of God. The thing above all others that enables even the angels to comprehend the wisdom of God. It's the pinnacle of his creative skill. To say it's temporary, it's an afterthought, is to totally miss what God has said. So you might get some flashy novels selling well in the USA at the moment. Don't let them confuse you. God is full of love for his church. Let me just finally apply as we conclude this short series. The gospel is personal. It always starts personal. Maybe you can remember the first time you met him as we sing that great song. I still remember the first day I met him. I can remember it very vividly. It's personal. It was so personal. Yeah, the gospel's personal. It starts personal, but it goes beyond the personal. It goes into God's great plan. God's got a great scheme for the world and for man. God's not just trying to catch up. He's not, oh gosh, what do I do now? God's kind of Victorian, wondering how can I cope with the 21st century. God's not reacting. He's got a great plan. The God who created a perfect world has purposed, because it's his world, to restore the whole universe to perfection. He's planned to do so by a new creation. The central part of that new creation is his church. Ever since Christ was in the world, this new humanity 
has been forming. God is preparing us for a full day of manifestation. A day is coming which Jesus calls the regeneration. Matthew 19, 28. In the regeneration. Same word for you and me getting born again. Regenerated. He says in the regeneration. This whole world groaning, aching, longing for. Groaning, waiting for what? The full manifestation of the sons of God. A regeneration of the whole cosmos. A new heavens, new earth, and in the midst of it, the glorious church, Christ being at its center. Does the future have a church? Listen, be encouraged. Be encouraged in your home base. Be encouraged in your new planting. Be encouraged in the church that you're starting and working with. You are the focal point of history. God is constantly with you, working his works, building his church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen.